Our sermon this morning comes from the book of Philippians, chapter 2. We'll be beginning in verse 14. So I invite you to turn your Bibles to that passage. If you want to use a pew Bible in front of you, you'll find that on page 981. And though the verses will be on the screen, uh, when I first read through the text, I, I do encourage you to have the Bible open in your lap. We're going to, as is our custom, just work verse by verse through this text. And I think you'll find it very helpful as you follow along to have the Scripture before you. It will be a reminder to you that what we're considering today is not a man's word, but it is God's word. And I think you'll find that very helpful. So that will be in Philippians chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 14. If you're finding your way there this morning, I I failed to mention earlier that uh, this evening, Josh and Jessica will be back in front of the church at 6 o'clock tonight. And uh, we're going to have an opportunity to ask them questions and uh, hear their answers. And so I can't wait for that. Uh, That sounds like a lot of fun uh, for me and uh, for some of us. And so um, I hope you do plan to come back. And this will be your opportunity to hear from Josh and Jessica. And uh, I trust we'll be richly blessed by that. That will help inform us as we gather together on Wednesday night. One other thing I failed to mention as well is that Wednesday night, I do hope you come because not only are we going to be voting for uh, this disimbursement of funds and and for uh, to call Josh, we're also going to be voting to enter into a missionary partnership with our brother Ryan Copas, who many of you know now, and uh, he and his bride have just been appointed uh, to Central Asia by the IMB, and, and they're going to be down there for their training later in August. And so um, I do hope you'll be there on Wednesday night as we enter into that relationship with Ryan. You'll hear more about it on Wednesday night. So hopefully you found your way to Philippians chapter 2 and uh, verse 14. Hear now the word of God. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time now that we can come and and to hear from you. And we come before your word and we we ask you, Father, to speak to us, that you would serve us now, that you would reveal yourself to us through what the apostle calls the word of life, and may give life today. Perhaps there are some who do not know Christ as their Savior and Lord. It would give life to them as they hear his word. Their spirit takes that and works in their heart for many of us that Your word would sustain life and grow life in us as we seek to follow Christ with all we say and do. So please come by your spirit now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was on a foggy winter night in 1699 when a stately trading vessel was sailing off the southern coast of England. The ship's captain tensed as his navigator announced that they were approaching the infamous Eddystone Reef, which had caused untold shipwrecks up to that day, costing hundreds of sailors their lives and sending thousands of pounds of cargo to the bottom of the English Channel. The reef, the Eddystone Reef, consists of a a number of rocky pinnacles just feet below the surface of the ocean. They are invisible to the human eye, but very deadly to wooden sailing vessels. 
And so as the captain, hundreds of years ago, pondered this treacherous location in which he sailed on this foggy night, his watchman suddenly called out, announcing that he saw a light off the starboard. At that time, the captain stared through the fog and saw a glowing beacon, and suddenly he realized the rumors that he had heard are true. Someone had built a lighthouse on the Eddystone Reef. He said the Eddystone Lighthouse was built in 1698. It was one of the greatest achievements in civil engineering in its day. The first lighthouse built fully exposed to sea, nine miles off the coast of England. The lightkeepers would uh, winter there, spending the whole winter there as they kept the light alive, continually replacing the 60 candles as they burned down and feeding the massive lantern. And as those lighthouse keepers kept the light um, burning, they rescued many from destruction. In fact, 1699 was the first year in many years that there was not a ship lost upon that reef. Well, if I could carry the analogy into our lives... I would suggest to you, friends, that we live in a treacherous time, even a dangerous place, as many thousands, day by day, many whom you know and love, uh, make a shipwreck out of their lives. Even though they feel like they are living in safety, they thrust their lives upon the dangers of sin and folly. In fact, when Paul surveys his generation, he looks at it, and in verse 15, he considers it to be crooked and twisted. I wonder if that's perhaps an apt description of the culture in which we live in today, a twisted and crooked generation. If that's the case, then what are we to do as we live amidst a a culture like that, that that fits that description, as we live in a difficult situation, and one that seems to be increasingly treacherous in our day? How are you, Christian, to live in the midst of that? Well, interestingly enough, the apostle does not simply say you do your best to to, to navigate, safely navigate these waters. That's how many live, I think. Followers of Christ think, okay, this world is, is going the wrong direction. We're just going to retreat and hide and shelter down. And we're just going to try to make through, uh, through it as we protect our family, my kids, and, and my life. But rather than saying every man for themselves, the apostle has different command for us. He said we are to shine as lights. You see that in verse 15? That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Shine light on the danger of sin. We are to show one another how to live. You see, the apostle looks at his, his culture and sees the sin in it and he therefore beckons those who follow Christ to influence the world around them. It reminds me, of course, and perhaps you, of our Lord, who in preaching the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 and verse 14 said, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither was one light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but instead they put it on the stool that it may give light to everyone in the room. In the same way, let your good deeds be seen by others. Let your light shine, he says, that they may glorify our Father in heaven. It seems this is what what the Apostle is calling us to, to to influence our culture, influence our generation. You know, of course, that you are a product of influence. That people have had a massive influence on you. You are who you are today because of other people. The job you work, the hobbies you enjoy, 
the way you parent your children or husband your wife or spend your money is largely dependent upon how other people have influenced you. I mean, even even this very moment, you're demonstrating the influence of others, aren't you? As you sit here in these pews on a Sunday morning. You do realize it's Sunday, right? I mean, it is beautiful outside. Are there not wonderful things you could be doing other than this? Right? You could be reading the paper. You could have slept in this morning. You could be working in the garden on a cool May day. And yet here you are. How incredibly odd. You're sitting in pews listening to a man talk to you in an extended monologue from an ancient letter written to an obscure people. And yet you come. Because I imagine others have influenced you. You're here today because of the influence of others. Some of you perhaps experienced that influence rather aggressively this morning as you were made to come. Others perhaps can trace that influence to people in our past, perhaps parents or friends long gone. They have influenced us. They have made an impact on us. In fact, we're influenced even from the earliest of age. Allegedly a child who usually was driven to school by his father was one school day driven by his mother. He asked his mother on the way to school, where are all the idiots? His mother was somewhat surprised, saying, what do you, what do you mean? He's, he replied, well, when dad drives, there are at least three or four idiots on the road. Right? Right? You see, we, the influence impacts us from the, the very beginning. We're impacted by others. And Paul here in this text actually uh, re, re, is aware of this. And yet, rather than inviting us to simply consider how we have been influenced by others, he actually wants us to ponder our influence upon our culture. How is it that we impact others? In fact, I I think as we look at this text, it would be helpful to remind us of the context we find ourselves in as we have been working through uh, this, this letter to the Philippian church. Last week, we saw that he had called us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling for his God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And, and he told us to do this great outworking of our salvation in light of what Christ has done for us. So you remember it was some time ago that we consider from verses five and six all the way through 11 what Christ had done as Paul rehearses in our mind the unimaginable descent that Christ had taken as he left heaven and took on flesh and became a servant and served us by obeying God even to the point of crucifixion in which God responded by this catapulted exaltation to place Christ above everyone else. Though most people disregard him, he said one day everyone will know who he is as every knee in heaven and on earth and under earth bow to him and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is where we are. And we find ourselves in this place as as Paul has rehearsed these majestic and eternal truths. And then we come to verse 14 and he says, now stop whining. Or verse 15, your neighbor's crooked. Or verse 17, I may be dying. You see, we're coming down from the mountain here. We had mounted the, the peak of Philippians earlier in this chapter. We had summited these great Christological truths, the great sovereignty of God in our sanctification. And now we are coming down from the mountain and into the mundane life of everyday living. I grew up, as most of you know, in Southern California. And, and one of the things you do when you're in Southern California in the L.A. Basin, you get used to the air you breathe. In fact, you get used to being able to see the air you breathe. Um, <laughs> But every once in a while, when we would go backpacking in the mountains in Southern California up in the San Gabriel Mountains, 
the first thing you would notice is the air. It, it, it almost hurt to breathe for a little bit, and you, you felt dizzy as you actually got oxygen to your brain. And, and it was like your lungs become, became unshackled, and you would get out of the car and smell the pines, and the first thing you would do is you would just breathe. That would be like an activity. You would do that for fun. You would sit down on a log and just enjoy the air in which God had made. And I feel like that's where we've been in Philippians. We've been on the peak. But you can't stay up there forever, can you? The backpacking trip has to end. And we would literally drive down the mountain. And before you left the mountain, you would see the haze into which you were plummeting back down into the, the layer of smog. And I feel like that's where we are in this letter. We are coming back down into the smog of everyday life. We might prefer that Paul keep talking about these great Christological truths and the work of God, but he wants us to take these truths and help, him, help, help inform us how we are to live. See, we, we understand these truths that we've considered, but we don't leave them behind. They come with us on, into Monday mornings and Wednesday afternoons and help us understand how is it that I am to live a life worthy of the gospel? as he called us to do in chapter 1 and 27? Or how is it on, on Tuesday morning am I to have the mind of Christ, as he told us in chapter 2 and verse 5? Or how is it on Saturday afternoon I work out my salvation, as he told us in chapter 2 and verse 12? And it's here, the nitty-gritty that he begins to explain in this text before us how it is that we work out our salvation that he called us to do so just a verse or two earlier. You see, we first of all are to work out our salvation through trusting contentment. Again, this look to, before review, look in verse 12 and we'll go all the way through verse 14. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And do all things without grumbling or questioning. And so he says, work out your salvation and do so with fear, do so with trembling, for God is working in you. And so we wonder, well, how? How, how do I work out my salvation? Well, he tells us, stop complaining. Stop grumbling, he says. Stop arguing. Be content, which is somewhat shocking because it's so incredibly mundane. I mean, when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, we're expecting him to say, now pack everything up and go to a foreign land or wake at four and become a man of prayer or give all you have and sell it and, 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 and give the proceeds to the poor. He didn't say that at all. He says, stop whining. Stop complaining. In fact, it's moreover shocking because we think, well, what's wrong with a little complaining? What's wrong with a little grumbling? What's the big deal? Perhaps you've even met people that think it's their spiritual gift to criticize. Like God has equipped them to make sure that they let everyone know they are not happy. Right? And people even boast in that. And yet here Paul is saying, stop it. In fact, I think this is perhaps the most tolerated of Christian sins. We grumble about our jobs. We grumble about our families, our cars, our children, our church. I've been very convicted, to be perfectly honest. Um, I, I know, especially after this winter, I did quite a bit of whining as we got through this weather. It's too cold. It's too much snow, I would often be saying. This came back to me as I studied this text this week. And I realize it's not enough for me, evidently, that I live in the time and the place where I actually can control the temperature in my office and my home. But I actually want a thermostat for outside, too. 
that we are not going to complain, we're not going to be content unless we can control everything. Everything is to our liking. And if it's not to our liking, we make sure everyone knows that it's not to our liking. And it's not, of course, simply whether we complain amongst almost everything. We, as you know, live in the richest country in the world, amongst probably the richest time in the world, and maybe in the richest part of the richest country at the richest time in the world. And nevertheless, complaint and discontentment is still among us. We're seldom satisfied. It seems the richer we grow, the more things we have, the more we discontent we become. And I want you to understand the problem with discontentment is that it's sin. The problem with grumbling is that it's rebellion. It is a sin against God. It is a declaration, you are doing a poor job, God, with the weather. You are doing a poor job directing my life. Grumbling is, is anti-worship. It is the opposite of praise. We praise Him, declaring God is great. But when we whine and complain, we say God is failing. And I would like to remind you, it is not why He gave you a tongue. That you might complain about the job He is doing. In fact, Paul mentions this grumbling or questioning. And he's using these specific uh, reference back to the nation of Israel. And their pathetic whining as we even considered, as we had Scripture read for us this morning, as they wandered in Israel. Wandered in the wilderness, excuse me. It seems to me that Paul is drawing a contrast between how Israel did behave and how the church should behave. You know, if you read the accounts, that when they were in Egypt, they complained about being in Egypt. And when they were out of Egypt, they complained about being out of Egypt. When they were thirsty, they complained, and God gave them water from a rock. When they were hungry, God complained, or they complained, and God sent bread from heaven. When they were tired of bread, said, we want meat, and they complained, God gave them quail. Complained, seems like, for 40 years in the wilderness, and when they arrived at the promised land, they complained there too. Numbers 21, the Bible seems to summarize their complaint, saying the people spoke against God. You hear that? They spoke against God. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, no water, and we loathe this worthless food. You're a bad cook, God, is their criticism. Their provision, his provision is not enough. And we look at this and we think, silly Israel. Do you not realize that God with his outstretched arm just defeated the mightiest empire in the world that he might redeem a bunch of slaves? I think we would do well before we cast our stones in their direction to gaze upon this mirror before us as we look into our own lives. That you, friends, I think are prone to this sin as well. It is against God, as Josh read in Exodus 16. Your grumbling is not against us, Moses said, but against the Lord. They rejected God's plan. They rejected his leaders. They rejected God himself. God's response is recorded in Numbers 11, saying, The people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortune. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. He does not take it lightly, I don't think. And so Paul seems to be saying, don't be like Israel. The, the church, if you will, is God's people. Are we not redeemed out of our bondage through the Passover lamb as we make our way to the promised land? This is who we are today. So let us not grumble against God in the midst of his miraculous and costly grace. So I ask you this morning, are, are you a grumbler? Are you a whiner? Are you a discontent? I would commend to you the gospel. I think it is your cure for discontentment. 
As you consider what Christ has done and what he has given to you, I think you would do well to rehearse that in your mind. I think you would do well, as I've said before, when your eyes open the morning, that you would, before you take a step out of bed, rehearse the gospel in your mind, thinking, I, as sinner, have been given another day of life by a gracious God who redeemed me through the death and resurrection of his son. That that would fill your heart as you begin your day. Because when we, all we think about is all we don't, that we want and don't have, or all we have and don't really want, we become discontent. But if we actually focus on what God has done for us through Christ, what He has promised you, I think your hearts will be won by the grace of God. The, the gospel will change your life. And I'm not saying life is easy. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that that means you won't have pain in your life. Far from it. Life is hard. But even in difficulties and troubles, the gospel will keep you from murmuring. In fact, you look in Philippians chapter 4. You think you have a hard life. Notice Paul's in verse 11. He says, not that I am speaking of being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstances, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You see what he's saying is that I, I am a content man because of the gospel. I have learned the secret of contentment even when I'm starving. It is that God loves me and God has poured out grace upon me and God has promised great things for me. The gospel, I think, will remind you of these truths. In fact, it will remind you that you do not deserve better which seems to be the root of complaining. I deserve a better job or a better car or a better life or better health or a better church. You don't deserve better. The gospel reminds you of that. You deserve hell. You deserve a Christless eternity. That's what we deserve. And so let us not grumble against God while He's saving us from hell. Let us not murmur against Him while He is saving us from our sins. Beware of a grumbling spirit. It is ingratitude towards God. It will impede the growth of your own soul. And it will be an undertow upon the church. In fact, often our grumbling is not just against God, but it is against each other, isn't it? We have a tendency to bicker and murmur about how we are treated by one another. The gospel here, too, is your cure for that attitude. As you consider what you have received through the death of Jesus Christ, it will quiet your murmuring against one another. In fact, it will unite us as we understand who we are in Christ, that we have all received grace, that we might be quick to extend it to one another. The gospel brings us together. It unites us. We can be united a number of things, of course. We can all unite in politics, perhaps, or some style of praise, perhaps, or we can unite around some uh, sports teams, perhaps. I, I could suggest some to you, um, right? We, we could unite around some charismatic leader, couldn't we? But that's how the world unites, at least for a little while. I think the gospel brings us together. I think the gospel unites. It's not like, not like a bag of marbles once when it was opened or torn. We, we all spill out and go our own way. But no, we're like a, a magnet with iron shavings. The gospel doesn't hold us together. It draws us together. And even as some force rips us apart, we are all drawn back to one another because we are all drawn to Christ. That's what the gospel does. It brings us to one another because Christ brings us to himself. What a change we would be. Don't you think? What, what, a, what a different people we'd be if we were so overwhelmed by the gospel that complaint never even occurred to us. Grumble? 
complain? Oh, but I have grace. I have forgiveness. I have eternal life. I am a new creation. And one day I shall walk upon a new creation in perfect fellowship with my God for all eternity. How could I complain against one who has given me so much? Grumble? Complain against one another? Oh, but I have been forgiven of 10,000 times more than whatever any man can do against me. How then can I receive the grace of God and murmur against my brother? No, I will not complain. I wonder what bondages we can free in people's lives if we became a community, a faith community, with perfect contentment in gospel, too preoccupied with gratitude to complain. This is what Paul calls us to, this content faith community. And in doing so, he says it will give visibility to the gospel. As we consider number two, we are to work out our salvation through a brilliant witness. Again, verse 14, he says, Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. He says that we're to be blameless. In fact, the, the, the contentment leads into that. You notice for the beginning, first word in verse 15, that, so that, this is a purpose clause. Stop grumbling so that, if you will, in order that you might be blameless and innocent. Blameless is this idea there's no scandal to my life. I'm not causing people to stumble by my witness. Innocence is this inward purity that he's referring to. He goes on to say you'll be children of God without blemish. You'll be like God. You'll look like God your Father. Not that you're sinless, but that you're genuine towards Him. And this content, blameless life that Paul is calling us to becomes a witness, he says. It becomes a brilliant witness. We begin to shine as lights, or some translations say as stars in the world. And you think about our world. It's growing increasingly dark, it seems to me. At the very least, we, I think it would be true to say we live in a crooked world, a world that is walking upon its own crooked path, or we live in a twisted world or a depraved world. That, we're, that it seems that sin is growing, but even if sin is not growing, there seems to be an, an increasingly greater joy in sin, an increasingly greater boasting in sin in our day. And day by day, we hear these reports of how the West seems to be gladly plunging itself into darkness, into crookedness and twistedness. And we have choices before us as we consider that. We could scream and get angry, can't we? What are you doing to our country, we could say. Or perhaps we could withdraw and hide and just try to make it through. Or, or maybe even yield and go with the flow in order to be relevant to an increasingly twisted culture. All these are our options. But there is one option which the Bible actually suggests for us to face. Is that as the darkness abounds, so does our opportunity to be a witness to light, to the gospel. After all, when do stars shine the brightest? It's when it's dark outside. When you leave here this afternoon, the stars will be shining, all of them. You just won't be able to see them. They're, they're blocked out by the sun. And even on a full moon, it seems like the stars are dim. But when it's dark outside, when the sun is set and the moon is new, the brilliance of the stars seem to grow. As darkness abounds, so, so does their brilliance. In fact, most of you have, have never really even seen stars. Maybe you think you have. Uh, but until you lie on your back on an alpine peak at 12,000 feet, some dry Southern California air, and look up into the sky, well, you haven't seen them like you could see them out there. 
In fact, it was years ago I was uh, backpacking in southern Utah. And I, I flew into Vegas, and it was a long flight, and I got a rental car, and I was driving some backcountry roads through southern Utah to get to the trailhead. And I, I, it was dark out. I mean, it was dark, dark. And I had not seen a car in 40 minutes or so. And I just, man, it is dark out here. And I kind of wanted to see how dark it was. So I had this wonderful idea. I'm just going to turn off my headlights real fast. Right? And so that, that's a bad idea, in case you're wondering. Um, at least if you're going to turn off your headlights, make sure you stop the car first. Um, but, uh, in fact, we don't, we don't have time to finish the story. Um, but it was just, just to say, it was a bad, bad outcome. Right? It, was, it was like a, my, uh, a blanket was thrown over the window, and I couldn't, couldn't, couldn't see anything. I mean, it was dark. And I remember driving to that trailhead around 2.30 in the morning, and I was exhausted and tired, and I, I just wanted to get up and set, my, set up my tent so I'd get on the trail early in the morning. And as soon as I stepped out of the car, I, I saw what I had been missing, and I was arrested by the brilliance of the sky. You see, southern Utah has some of the driest air in the world, and the stars shine there brighter than perhaps any place else. And I just sat down there on a stump, even though I was exhausted, and prayed and worshipped and honored this God who had made these stars that assaulted me in their brilliance. I want to be like that. I want Hamilton Baptist Church to be like that. That we live so close to Christ that we can't help but draw attention to Him by how we live. Shine like stars in the sky, He says. Not so that we can be thought of well, but that Christ can. Maybe you have a dark situation in your life. Maybe it's in school or work. Please understand God is giving you an opportunity through contentment and purity to shine, to be bright, that, that Christianity will stand out when rightly understood in this selfish and whining, self-pitying world in which we live. Maybe you're at your trial, your darkness is not in school or work, but maybe it's even within you. Maybe it's sickness or uncertainty for the future. Even there you have an opportunity in your contentment and your blamelessness to shine. We've seen this in Paul's life. Remember, he's writing from prison, isn't he? And, and there he is now, four years into his imprisonment. And, he, and make matters worse, he's being slandered by other Christians. And yet, he gets to the end of his explanation. In chapter 1, in verse 18, he says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice, he says. He, he rejoices even in the midst of great hardship and darkness. In fact, he said in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So don't worry about me. Don't worry about my imprisonment. The gospel is going forward. Now my question for you is, do you think that will gain notice when people live like that? Well, all you have to do is look in verse 13 of chapter 1. He says, so that has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. When we get to chapter 4, we'll see some of them, even in Caesar's household, have come to Christ through faith. Because of the life that Paul is living, the, the, the witnesses in which he is bearing through this contentment, even in the midst of these difficult, incredibly hard situations. We have a witness in our argumentative and self-assertive age as we grow in contentment for Christ. This is what he calls us to do. This is part of our witness. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. Perhaps, well, we're delighted you're here, by the way, and we're thankful that you can come and hope you feel welcome. And I know that many people, and I speak to them who, who don't follow Jesus, don't, don't do so because of their encounter with those who do. And they are put off by Christ because of the way Christians act. 
And they see Christians as hypocrites and grumbling. And if that's your situation, I, I would ask you to forgive us. Please forgive us. That is not the witness we intend to give. We intend to give a much greater witness than that. We intend to live a certain kind of life, not because we're right or good or wise, but because we believe God is. And we want to demonstrate that by how we live. We want to have this brilliant witness, and and we do so as we hold fast to the word of life, which is thirdly what Paul calls our attention to as he says, work out your salvation through a commitment to Scripture. If you read on in verse 16, he says, holding fast to the word of life. He calls us to hold fast. Hold fast means to focus on. It means to not be moved from. In 1 Timothy 4, he uses the same phrase saying, keep a close watch on yourself in the teaching. Or in Acts 3, the Bible says, he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. It's focusing in on something. Or, or in Acts 19, it says, Paul himself stayed in Asia for a while. It's a refusal to be moved from it. So he says, hold fast, focus on the Word, never leave the Word, he says. He, he focuses in, and if you want to shine like stars in the heavens, you, you must therefore never leave God's Word. Place your focus on it. Don't get distracted. As it seems like many Christians do by the latest Christian fad, the, the latest movement, the latest church growth uh, idea. No, he says, stay with the Word. We should be like Peter who, who said to Jesus, whom shall I go to? For you alone have the words of eternal life. Remember when Jesus says to the apostles, Will you too leave me? I wonder if that's a good question for us. As church after church, it seems in our day, seems to abandon God's word in order to be relevant to this culture. At least that's what they claim to be. I wonder, will we leave too? No. Will we leave too, church? We won't leave the word. We must hold fast to the word. And even when you're barraged by, by people saying it doesn't work anymore, there's another way. Get rid of the word. It's irrelevant. It's old. It's dead. We must hold fast to it. We must declare to Christ what Peter said. Lord, we will never leave you. For who else has the words of life? This is why we consider it every Sunday morning at length. Work through it. This is why many of you throughout the week scatter into our communities and meet in each other's homes and discuss God's Word in small groups and how we can apply it to our life. He says we hold fast to the Word for the Word is life. He calls it the Word of life, doesn't he? That's interesting. It, it, it may be because the Word gives life. And Peter tells us that you have been born again not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. It gives life. It's a living Word. It produces life in us. But I think perhaps Paul is referring to the fact that it, that it sustains life. That the Word helps us to grow. That it's through the Word of God we grow. That in, in our focusing on it, it keeps giving you life. It keeps giving you fuel to which you may shine. The Word will make you content. If we come to it again and again through the Spirit of God, the Word will make us pure. The Word will unite us if we hold fast to it. But if we do not, if you do not feed upon the Word of life, you will grow weak. You will grow unhealthy. It is your source of sustaining life. If you do not hold fast to it, you will not shine like you should. I don't care how much you love Jesus. I don't care how much you love Jesus. If you neglect His revelation, 
If you neglect His Word, you will starve yourself. And your light will not be bright for Him. He tells us to hold fast to His Word. You want your faith to be strengthened? Hold fast to it. For the Bible says faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. You want to create joy in your life? Hold fast to the Word of God. These things I have spoken to you that you may have, you, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. You want freedom from bondage? Then hold fast to the Word of life. For Scripture tells us if you abide in my Word, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You want to be made holy like Christ? Then hold fast to the Word of life. For our Lord prayed, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. You want to have a fruitful life, a life of stability and abundance? The Bible tells us that on His law He meditates day and night and He is therefore like a tree planted by streams of waters that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. Do you want to have life and growing life in you? Then hold fast to the Word of life. For man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Learn, brothers and sisters, to read the Bible, to come to it, to study it, to consider it, and discuss it, and to pray over it, and to pray through it. And as you do, please be wary of the common question that sometimes we ask when we leave our Bible reading. What did I get out of it? We don't, we don't ask that question when we interact with each other, I don't think. Like when you speak to me or I speak to a friend, I don't leave evaluating that conversation thinking, now what did I get out of that conversation? We don't do that. And yet so often we come to God's Word and we think, okay, what, do, what did I get out of that? And, and if we didn't, can't list anything, it's like it was a failure for us. I would like to remind you that the Bible is not a book of tidbits on how to live your life. It is not a book of hints or suggestions. Now my hope is that you will get something out of it. But the Bible is the perfect revelation of God. We read it to know Him. This is how He reveals Himself to you. This is how we know who He is and what He has done and what He promises to do. Feed your soul upon who God is and His work and His future work and you will begin to shine as the Word of God through the Spirit conforms you into the image of Christ. And by the way, be wary of the attitude, well, I already know that. Right? Oh, I've already read that one. I've already learned that. Well, do you already know what steak tastes like? Yes. Do you plan to eat more? Yes. Because it's delicious. You know what coffee tastes like? Yes. You plan to drink more? Yes. Because it is black elixir from heaven that helps us love God, right? Well, do you know the gospel? Do you know that Jesus died and rose again? Yes. But do you plan to go back to the gospel? Yes. Because it will feed your soul. It will transform your life. It will renew the God's work in you. Do not starve yourself from God's Word. Do not starve your lamp from soaking your wick in the word of life that you might shine. Hold fast to God's word. Brothers and sisters, I don't want to be legalistic, but I don't know good reasons for us not to be in his word daily. I don't. Maybe there are. I'm not saying if you don't do that, you're in sin, but that's something I would suggest you talk to God about. It is, it is your food. It is your soul. It is your fuel. 
Work out your salvation by holding fast, he says, to the word of life. And then lastly, Paul um, asks us, encourages us, commands us perhaps to work out our salvation through joyful sacrifice. As we read on in verse 16, he says, So that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And so what Paul is saying is that he wants to be proud of the Philippians. That, that they are following Jesus. That they are working out their salvation, as he called them to. That they are devoted to Christ. And he's very kind of fatherly here, as we've seen him throughout this letter. He has this fatherly relationship with them. And he wants to be proud of them. He wants uh, to, to know, he says, that I, I didn't run in vain. I didn't labor in vain. He looks at his ministry in their life and bringing them to Christ and discipling them as a labor or as a race. And he wants to make sure that the work that he's doing in their life, the race that he's running in their life, actually is, is working out in them. That it's actually producing the fruit in them and drawing them close to God. And he says something very similar in verse 17, though he changes the metaphor. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. And so here he's speaking of sacrifice. In fact, I don't know if you noticed, but in verse 17 there are two sacrifices. He, Paul is referring to himself as the drink offering or the drink sacrifice, and the Philippians are the sacrificial offering. Note that again. Even if I'm poured out as a drink offering, that's Paul's sacrifice, upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, that's their sacrifice. And, and, and what, what they would do in the days of Paul, every morning and evening, they would sacrifice a lamb. But before the lamb would be burned, they would pour wine all over the lamb as a drink offering on top of the sacrifice. And the book of Numbers tells us that they would pour this wine on the sacrifice in order to enhance the pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now the lamb was the central sacrifice, but the drink offering enhanced it. And so the metaphor that Paul is saying is he looks at the Philippians' lives in their pursuit of Christ and he sees that that's the sacrifice to God. That's the primary sacrifice when they're content when they're not grumbling, when they're pure and blameless, when they're bearing witness, when they're holding fast to the word of life, that's the sacrifice that he's looking for. And then Paul says, and probably in a reference to his death, as we know he's waiting verdict from season, whether it be executed or freed, referring to his own death, he says, I just want to be the drink offering on top of your sacrifice. Such, such a drink offering would be useless, however, if there was no primary sacrifice. That's why he's saying, I don't want this to be in vain. I don't want to run in vain. I don't want to labor in vain. And Paul's, in other words, saying, I'm willing to do anything. I'm willing even to die, he says, if in doing so my life has drawn you to Christ. In fact, he's not only willing, he seems to be joyful. And you know, notice at the end of verse 17, he says, I am glad and rejoice with you all. He says, even if I die, I will rejoice, he, he proclaims. And once again, we see in the book of Philippians, Paul returns to this golden thread of joy that is woven through the tapestry of the book of Philippians. As we saw in chapter 1, that he rejoices when he prays for them and when Christ is proclaimed and, and uh, when his imprisonment is uh, considered, he's rejoicing. And later in chapter 5, he says, I hope to return to you and that will fill me with great joy as you grow in your, your pursuit of joy. And then in chapter 2 he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same heart. And now in verse 17 of chapter 2 he says, I rejoice in your sacrificial uh, offering, your devotion, your love of God, even to the point where I'm content to pour out my own life in order that it might happen. In fact, he, Paul's not only rejoicing, but he invites them to rejoice, as you notice in verse 18. Likewise, you, sh you also should be glad and rejoice with me. 
He wants everyone to have joy in this as we work out our salvation. And please don't misunderstand that when Paul speaks about joy here, it's not an invitation just to kind of smile, even though life is hard. It's, It's not an invitation to plaster a smile upon your face in the midst of pain. It's not what he's asking. What, what he's inviting them to experience, and what I think he's inviting us to experience, is, is the joy that comes in times of ease and comes in times of hardship when our lives are devoted to the gospel. When our lives are devoted to Christ. This is why I think so few Christians ex- don't experience the joy in which Paul refers to, because we hinge our joy this, on the circumstances of life. And when things are going well, then we're joyful. And then when things are hard, we become miserable and maybe even resentful, just like the world. We know little of Paul's joy that he commends to us. And I think we know little of Paul's joy because we know little of Paul's sacrifice. I think there's a link here between Paul's willingness to sacrifice and the joy that he has. I think there's a biblical connection. I I think, therefore, when there is not sacrifice, when you live, in other words, to get your own way, when you are seeking your own interests above those of other people's interests, you will find joy to be largely absent from your life. Interestingly enough, it seems to be a paradox to me that when we begin to not seek our own pleasure for Christ, it is at that time when we find pleasure in living that way for Christ. You ever, for instance, you ever find people who are constantly seeking their own way, do they seem like happy people to you? Often they seem to be miserable people, constantly wanting more and more. And yet here Paul says, I'm willing to sacrifice, and in doing so for the cause of Christ, it fills me with joy. So I wonder, what what sacrifices are you making? What are you giving up for Christ? And this is not a call to, we're not going to pass the plates in a minute, so please don't misunderstand me. This is not a call to giving. It's not even a call for more ministry. But what about your preferences? What about your own interests? What about... You're grumbling. What about laying that aside? What about sacrificing your own desire for the sake of your brothers and sisters in Christ? I wonder if you would find joy in that. It seems that's what Paul is telling us. In fact, the reason we find joy in that, in sacrificing for Christ, is because I believe when we do so, we actually find the source of our joy, namely Christ. In fact, you notice in chapter 3 and verse 8, this wonderful, incredible passage, in which Paul, after rehearsing all of his achievements, all the things he has done, is willing to give them all up. He says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He wants to gain Christ. You see the source of Paul's joy? I'll give up everything if I could gain Christ. Gain Christ now. Fellowship and intimacy and power to do His work. And then gain Christ then. In fact, there's a little phrase we skipped over in verse 16. If you look back in chapter 2, when he says, Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may, I, um, in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain. You see what he's thinking of and focusing on? He has his eye upon the day of Christ, that Christ is coming, he says. So I gain Christ now, and I'm going to gain more of Christ then, that Christ will return. In fact, you do realize that Christ has come to this earth. Perhaps you're here and you're not a believer. He came to this earth, and we believe as Christians He lived a sinless life. And yet He died upon a cross. 
Not because things got out of hand, but it was his intention to do so. He died because I'm a rebel and you're a rebel. And there upon the cross, he paid for the sins of all who would bow their knee to him as Lord. And three days later, he rose from the grave and ascended to heaven. And one day he has told us he is coming again. The Bible calls it the day of Christ in which he shall fully undo all the ravages of sin and reverse all of, all of um, the rebellion and sum up all things under his headship and leadership and invite us to live with him forever for all who would bow their knee to Jesus. You will not earn your place in that day. You can only surrender to him and receive his grace. If you have never done that, I'd love to be able to talk to you after the service or perhaps get a cup of coffee with you this, this week. We'll have a great time. I'll buy the coffee. It'll be wonderful. I, I'm looking for reasons to get coffee, so it'll be a, a great time. So let's talk about this. Let's consider this gospel. But the gospel is that Paul, Paul says that Christ is returning. He's coming, and when he comes, he gains Christ more. And so he's coming. You do realize that he may come, come this afternoon, God willing. What a wonderful thing that would be. And yet he has tarried, hasn't he? He's tarried. And Peter tells us why he waits. He waits so that his people can bear witness to his gospel. He waits so that we can take the gospel to our neighbors and to the nations. And so maybe he's going to wait this week. I would invite you then to bear witness to Him. I would invite you through the gospel to lay aside grumbling, seek contentment and trust as we as God's people shine like stars in the heaven for the glory of God. Father in heaven, we thank You. We thank You for the work that You have done in our lives. We thank You that Christ has come, that Christ has been raised and that Christ is returning. And we thank You that You have redeemed us by Your grace. Perhaps this We've considered here this morning, there may be one here this, this morning that does not know Jesus. I mean, they may know about Jesus, but they don't know Him as their Lord and Savior. And we pray by Your grace You would draw them to You, that You would give them eyes to see the glory of the Gospel and a heart to love and to rejoice in Jesus. And for us, Father, who follow Christ, who claim Him, Oh, Father, there is uh, uh, before us in this Scripture many simple ways in which we can grow in our pursuit of Him, grow in our Christ-likeness, working out our salvation as You work in us to will and to do. And so help us to be a people who rejoice in the Gospel and therefore lay aside grumbling and yet seek to shine as Your witnesses through our sacrifice and our purity and our contentment as we are refueled by Your Word of life. Help us to be people who follow Jesus well, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.